am Brian Gildenberg, um, the founder and CEO of Confluence Commerce and uh, partner of the Market Performance Group. And uh, today we are here for the Market Performance Group's Path Forward podcast, Counting What Counts in Retail Media. And we are going to have a robust and engaging dialogue around a number of the key topics in the retail media space. I am joined by three absolute stone-cold experts in this, and uh, I'm going to let each one of them introduce themselves in a moment. But uh, stay tuned for the next uh, 40 minutes or so. We're going to try to cover the, uh, the wild world of uh, will retail media networks become more standardized, uh, how is measurement going to evolve, how do the organizational structures and maps need to evolve in order to be able to... To, uh, to manage this increasingly important and, um, you know, candidly expensive uh, media proposition for, uh, for brands and uh, an increasingly important part of the overall commercial plan that large brands have with retailers. So I'm going to pass it over to guest number one, um, our friend Jeffrey Bustos from the IAB. And Jeffrey, if you just want to introduce yourself and uh, pass the ball around to uh, Andy Murray from BigQuest and uh, Heather Campaign from the Market Performance Group, that would be great. So, Jeffrey, over to you. Yeah. Brian, thanks for having me. Again, Jeffrey Bustos, Vice President of Measurement, Addressability, and Data at the IB, and hand it over to Andy. Hi, uh, thanks, Brian. Uh, great to be here and to see everyone. Uh, Andy Murray, uh, founder of BigQuest Advisory, do advisory uh, services strategically for retailers and CPG. And I'm Heather Campaign, and I lead Omni Commerce Acceleration for Market Performance Group. Outstanding. Well, that's the. Uh... So uh, quite a quite a group and uh, quite a collection. So we're going to start this podcast today, which uh, I think somewhat fortuitously, and we would I wish we could say we planned it on purpose. I'm not sure we did, uh, but coincide uh, fortuitously with the uh, release of the IAB's Retail Media Buyers Guide, uh, which is a really comprehensive look at a variety of uh, you know, a variety of aspects of where the retail media ecosystem is today. So, um, so Jeffrey, I'm going to pass the ball to you to get us started, and just take if you can just take us through a little bit of what uh, what's in the Retail Media Buyers Guide, um, what some of your key conclusions were, and uh, what you think some of the most interesting topics were that came out of it that we should be uh, that we should be discussing with our time here today. Yeah. So, I mean, first, you know, we had 91 different people participate across you know all the large retailers, brands, and agencies. So, the level of collaboration we saw was amazing. And what the guide really looks to do is it provides best practices for um, audience strategy, media planning, and creative management for on-site, off-site, and in-store. And it really focuses on how to create that omni-experience. One of the things that came out of it that we initially hadn't really planned for was the um, need for organizational mapping and relationship management. And it's really interesting to see how both retailers and brands or agencies are looking at retail media um, and really seeing its value and trying to understand how they should be structurally basing themselves internally, especially within brands. You know, how can brands make sure that they are talking amongst themselves internally to ensure that there is that consistent and seamless experience for the consumer, whether it's, you know, trade, shopper, retail, national. Uh, and we're seeing a lot more of that from an organizational mapping. I think that's really exciting. Excellent, um, Heather. I'm going to kick that. I'm going to kick that to you for a minute. I mean, I know at Market Performance Group, a lot of the work that uh, you slash we do in that space is around trying to help companies figure out what that uh, what that looks like from uh, you know whether it's an organizational structure point of view, a capabilities point of view, a planning point of view. What What are some of your thoughts around how you see that that question around? Are we structured the right way evolving? What, what does that look like to you? 
I feel like it looks like the merging of what has traditionally been commercial with brand. Um, I feel like it depends on which center of the universe a lot of the executives have traditionally come from. Um, and there's different points of view of should it be run by brand headquarters wise? Do the commercial teams have the marketing and media chops to be doing that? Um, I've also worked my entire career in CPG with customer teams and then, you know, there's a lot of intricacy now with joint business planning and how media and data factor into that that I think brand teams haven't been on the front lines of. So I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle of, you know, not is it here or there, but what does the future look like? I don't think you can build the future out of the old boxes. So I think it's about what is next. And then I also think um, the idea of change management and not in a um, institutional way um, necessarily with frameworks, but really getting people's hearts uh, and minds into the change because um, everybody's got to believe and be incented um, or it's not going to work, um, despite how great your organizational change might be and what a smart plan it is. If people don't believe and they don't come, it won't matter. Yeah, and Andy, in this particular topic, when I look at you, I think of an elephant. Um, <laughs> not for any, not for any facial resemblance reason, but I could say that too. But go ahead. Uh, yeah, that's that, that old metaphor about how you know, if six blindfolded people are all holding an elephant, they're all going to think it's something really different, depending on the part of the elephant they've got. Um, you've had the joy through your career of uh, holding most of this elephant in some way, shape, or form. Um, so you've been on the retailer side, you've been on the brand side, you've been on the agency side. Um, You've seen this evolve over time. How would you look at this given the, um, you know, I don't want to say the long history because that makes you sound you know, more mature than perhaps I want to, but. Uh, An older elephant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> elephant in a wheelchair will be the subtitle of this podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get the question. It's a great question. Um, you know, I look at it as organizational design is is really is important. It reflects the strategy, but it's the problem is it's out of sequence. And when you go to the big consulting guys, you know, that's the first place they go. And in this particular case, um, it needs to be the last. And, and I really believe that the first areas are upskilling processes, working through to understand and discover, and then you go to design. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people want the one answer. Should it be part of this or should it be part of that? And my experience has been, it really depends on your company strategy. For some companies that are super brand centric and maybe have big mature brands, uh, having some of these responsibilities more loaded to the brand side makes more sense. Others that uh, are more commercially minded sales driven companies with emerging brands might uh, have the bulk of the load carried in the commercial team. And so there is no one size fits all. It's a great question, but for those looking for a simple answer, it, I, I, there's no cookie cutter answer to this. Well, yeah, and, I, and my observation has been over the years that, and this is true of just about any problem that crops up that involves trying to think about how you bring together different organizations, number one, there's a 0.0% .0 correlation in my experience between any specific structure and being good at it. Um, so most of the companies that tend to be good at this stuff tend to be structured pretty differently. Like if you look at the, my old friends at Kantar and the power ranking survey that you do, you know, the top six companies in power ranking, they have nothing in common structurally at all. I mean, Pepsi and Coke are one and two. Pepsi and Coke are structured completely differently. It's two companies who sell the same product basically in the same category. 
um, you, you've got and agree, Andy, that the businesses have to organize in a way that's kind of true to their internal wiring to some degree. Um, and um, and then I think secondly, Heather, and I think the, the topic you got to, I thought was fascinating about trying to win not just the the uh, the boxes on the org chart, but the hearts and minds. I don't want to speak ill of any human, but organizational restructures, generally speaking, don't bring out the best in people. <laughs> it's a, it becomes a deeply territorial defensive exercise, right? You know, I'm concerned about my job. I'm concerned about the jobs of my team. I'm concerned about what my future will look like. It becomes a very inward looking exercise, not just for the organization, but for the individual. Whereas if I'm changing workflow or teaching you something, I can approach that with a little bit more of an open heart, right? You know, everybody wants to learn something. And, uh, and from a process point of view, if you get people working on doing the work the right way, the, po the possibility that the work gets done better is really good. So then you get the best part of people. You get people really leaning in. You get people, you get the high achievers in the organization who want to be part of that team. They build something cool that everybody wants to follow. Then all of a sudden you realize it's like, look, the work works better this way. Why don't we structure around it? So. I, I think that's interesting. Je Jeffrey, Jeffrey, we kind of, you, you kind of kicked us off and then we left you for a while. Um, but uh, in the conversations you were having with, uh, as you, as you put together the buyer's guide, how are, how are people looking at this problem? Did you get us, get a sense as to where, where it was going directionally at all from your point of view? One of the things that, you know, first that we were seeing was that, you know, there needs to be a, some level of center of excellence or, you know, hub that, is able to understand all the, um, what is the messaging across the different channels? And because there, there seemed that there was a lot of redundancy with the shopper teams, straight teams, branding teams, where they were all running the same media across different places uh, and maybe not that efficiently. Uh, and, you know, once also, once you get into JB negotiations, what, you know, a lot of brands, you know, need to understand is like, how are you restructure? Um, to your point, you need to find a way to get people to talk to each other. And to your point, it's also, you know, retail media is growing incredibly fast. And it feels like everyone's asking for 10 years of experience on something that's, you know, is very nascent. And, you know, I think it's okay for, you know, people to be like, hey, I don't know everything about retail media because there's a lot of trade stuff that happens. There's a bunch of, you know, now with in-store exploding, there's, you know, there's a lot of complexities, you know, in data. So I think it's knowing the, it's, it's, you know, but it's also very scary. You know, people have been working in retail space and media space for decades. They have tons of experience and all of a sudden they're entering into a changing field where they're not the expert on everything again. But I think it's, that's where, you know, organizations need to find a way to make your leaders talk to each other and find a collaborative environment. And to your point, you know, they will figure out what that structure is, but I don't think you can't restructure unless they're first talking to each other. Otherwise, it's, it's just not going to work. Well, and that talking to each other thing, I think such an important component of that, Heather, is just you can talk to people can talk to each other all day, but they may not understand each other. I mean, my favorite story on this topic is the 12 minute conversation I had when I worked at Omnicom with two very senior media people um, where we were talking about inventory and supply chain. At 1.12 p.m., I was the one who realized that we were talking about two completely different things. Like I was talking about physical products and trucks and stuff. They were talking about ad inventory in the ad supply chain. We managed to have a 10 minute conversation without realizing we were talking about two completely different things. And we both just thought the other were insane because of the answers we were giving back that made no sense. So I think that what you get to here is um, 
there's a vocabulary issue. There's a capabilities issue, Heather, right? That's such a big part of this. And how do you think, um, you know, if, if, I'm a, if I'm somebody like, say, MPG, how am I thinking about that from a capabilities point of view? What are, what are some of the successful things that you've seen organizations do to try to, try to help bridge that gap? Well, I, I feel like the vocabulary issue is like the first starter because I have been in those conversations too about ad inventory versus, you know, on shelf and digital availability inventory, uh, which is different. And so um, even the word omnichannel. You know what, that inventory's got to go to a DC. It's like, why are we putting the TV ad on in Washington? Who cares? Like uh, <laughs> exactly. So, and then you think about a literal, a literal line from this conversation. <laughs> yeah, omnichannel. Um, that's my other favorite one. I always say you ask five people, and it means five things. And omnichannel, you know. To me, it's all and that, you know, you look it up on Google, that's the the hit is all. So like if you're on the team, you're part of the omnichannel situation. And I think omnichannel and e-commerce have been interchanged and omnichannel gets used when people mean e-commerce or digital. And so I think some of it is just the super ABCs of vocabulary, making sure you're talking about the same things. And so I think it's starting at the beginning and building out from there and then getting to your objectives and other things. But I do think it's a huge win just to get an organization understanding when you're talking inventory, which type you're talking about, and then also getting beyond whether this is marketing, sales, um, media. What is your joint objective and how are we delivering that together? I would just add to that. I think when you look inside of companies, there's a great variability inside of most retailers from merchant to merchant to merchant. They don't all work in the same exact way. Uh, and they have different mindsets about collaboration, about what, how to treat suppliers. And, and that can vary greatly. And what, and the same thing's true inside of CPG, a, a multi-branded CPG can have some brand managers that look at it one way and another brand manager a, a different. And I think when you look at where you know, how does a company determine investment into a retail media? It may not be the metrics and the measures and the KPIs that determine where the investment goes. What I'm seeing happens is the investment's going when you've got a really forward-leaning brand manager, a, a merchant that wants to take risk and lean in and understand that we don't know everything, supported by their DM, and a customer team leader that you know understands it as well. And, and they could be maybe the smaller of the whole group getting the biggest investment because it takes those four in a box to, to make it work um, and, and, it, and not necessarily the biggest brand, which may have some recalcitrant brand manager that is just not on board. Yeah, well, I think that's that, that idea. Those two ideas are huge. Number one, the, uh, the, the idea that the people really matter, you know, it's a, as we as we as we reach a, as we reach one of the really obvious things that we need to talk about. But like the individuals matter here, right? Change agents are important. Finding people within your organization willing to be change agents is a big part of this. Um, and empowering them to do that is super, is super cool. I think the other, and then the, um, the, the other interesting piece, of course, is that now as you look at this, right? So we're now talking about, okay, even within a retailer, within one retailer, the merchant's perspective on this may vary wildly. And you've got some experience with retailers that have lots of merchants, Andy, which have, uh, which have you know, a wide range of perspectives and experience and pieces like that. Also within a brand family, you've got brands. Some, of, some brands are massive brands that spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television. Some brands are the forgotten brands within a CPG portfolio that actually could use retail media because it's, what the heck? I mean, we don't have, we, we have a zero, we have a zero national media budget, might as well do something. Um, 
And that starts to get you the whole question around standards, right? Because if I can't even standardize within one brand or one retailer, this sort of uh, this Don Quixote like quest for sort of uh, industry standards um, becomes kind of interesting. So, uh, so Don, uh, i.e. Jeffrey, um, as the person who uh, often gets turned to to kind of solve this problem on your own, um, how is the I when through the retail media buyer guide preparation process? How did you think about the need for standards? Did you do you feel differently about it having finished this project than you did when you started? And uh, and where do you where do you see that notion around standards going? Whether it's around standards of measurement, standards of metrics, standards of whatever, right? How how, how are you guys thinking about that? Yeah. So when we started the the initial project was actually categorization and definitions and. Um, the most difficult thing about retail media networks uh, is that none of them want to be called media, retail media networks. They wanted to be called media networks. So the categorization aspect was incredibly difficult. So then as we kind of evolved for that, I thought it was important for us to have an education through a guide of retail media, which is what the buyer's guide was. And then through those conversations, some issues came up or challenges or things that needed to be solved. And I didn't, we, we, I felt that it was better to have some sort of standardization around measurement. And what we're really trying to do with measurement is just ensure that there's transparency transparency within retail media uh, to just ensure that there's trust so that you can have that. And you can only have that if me as a buyer am able to compare my performance across retailers and know that I'm comparing apples to apples. And having transparency on definitions, how are things being defined? You know, is category share or need to brand consistent across retailers? If it's not, how are they different? Um, what are the viewability aspects of it? How is incrementality being measured? Is there synthetic data? So what we're really trying to do is, you know, having those basic definitions and the standards and really looking at the methodology. Uh, but one of the most exciting things is that retailers, most retailers want standards. Um, because there's also the other side of the coin that we, you know, we don't really talk about a lot that brands are very demanding and retailers are being asked for hundreds of things. And they, you know, a lot of retailers are champions of these standards because for them, it's easier to get alignment on what they need to work on standardization and having, you know, specific things that need standard instead of having all this customization on specific brands. Obviously, there still be a lot of customization because that's, you know, a big part of retail media. But, you know, I think with standard, it's not just standardizing retailers. It's also helping brands be more standardized in how they think about retail media. Yeah, and, and Andy, just given given how you've, you've looked at this over time, I mean, where do you, what do you, because why, let me float a hypothesis, because I think part of the problem with standards here is that um, you've got, one and this is particularly true in the U.S. This is not as much of a global issue where retail media didn't evolve in an Amazon-centric way, um, but in the U.S., because it evolved largely through Amazon, you've got a weird manifestation of retail media in this in this country. Because here the assumption is is that Amazon is the leader in retail media, and everybody has to quote copy Amazon. We have a whole separate podcast about how little sense that makes when the retailers are trying to copy Amazon have stores and Amazon doesn't. I mean, but not really. The um, the the key question, though, in there is that because Amazon's measurement system is to some degree just a little weird, um, the retailers, I think, feel the need to try to comp Amazon from a results point of view in a way that I think is, um, shall we call it, 
deleterious to the efforts to get to accuracy. Um, so to put it to put it charitably. So um, i.e. I think Amazon's I think some of the assumptions Amazon uses to generate a ROAS calculation force people force people to do some weird stuff. Um, how do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I agree. And I think, you know, if you're trying to compare ROAS across, you know, to multiple retailers when, you know, Instacart has an attribution window of what, you know, a couple of days, maybe. And you compare that to Amazon's attribution window, who's going to win? And, and, and that's not, you know, but who would we think is probably doing it more? I think it's perfectly fine that Amazon attributes success to ads that ran before Amazon was founded. I think that, I think that works great. <laughs> Just, just about right, and so you know, where you're going to compare that's I think the standard. What's what's wrong with that? Well, exactly, and I give Instacart credit for you know leaning out there and, and trying to get you know more a more realistic window, which is probably against uh, their best revenue goal uh, thinking, you know, in terms of raising revenue. So, you know, I, I hope we see more of that moving away from the trying to copy Amazon and getting to where it feels more like a retailer journey. Uh, because the mindset, you know, the, the cognitive load when you're shopping is different than even what the attribution window might be on a social media platform. And so uh, I do think those shorter windows makes more sense to the way shopper mindsets are, are actually absorbing data and looking at things. I agree a lot. And even if it's not standardization, I do think brands understanding those differences in attribution windows. And, you know, I give huge credit to retailers that are on their second or third iteration of their retail media model. I had a great conversation with Dollar General the other day, and they talked about tech partners and changes. One of the conversations was attribution. And, you know, they talked about how before they were counting, maybe before the ad was served. Um, um, and now they're not. And so I think being transparent about that and being open and showcasing the difference in methodology. Um, so I think if we can't get to standardization, at least having people understand the questions to ask. And then I also think looking at media as just media in this environment is also messy because your media, if it's paired with merchandise, is going to do better. And so if you're looking at media to media, if you have, you know, Andy, to your point earlier, an awesome buyer and you guys are collaborative and you are making it hum from full funnel and you've got your big bets together and they're aligned, you know, your merchandising is going to do better as a result of that. Your media is going to do better. So if you're looking at media at face value, you and you're not giving credit to the merchandising alignment, you're also going to be misreading, even though your methodology is awesome, there's a piece of that story that's missing that's incredibly relevant. And that's also very, very different than Amazon because that physical store presence can make your media sing in a very different way. And so I think standardization of media becomes a very interesting proposition because it's how well do you connect the dots? And I think that is something that you can't have on paper. You know, AI could help us on when merchandising was aligned if we collect that data, but it's a, it's a very complex methodology. Heather, I, I agree. I mean, uh, standards, you know, even me leading measuring standards, I, I think the most important KPI in retail media is return on relationship. Retail media is a relationship business, it's, it, it, which is the craziest thing. It is obviously a media business, but it is driven by relationships. And I think, yeah, to your point, understanding that is more important than any of that. Uh, but yeah. Well, just to build on that slightly, uh, you're right, Heather. Um, I was talking to a, C a large CPG yesterday, matter of fact, and they were talking about how when you look at all the KPIs, 
you know, there's KPIs for ones and zeros and the digital signals and such, but there's also some KPIs that are actually more important for some of them to, to come back to success. And that is how integrated and, and connected is the process and ease of use. And, you know, are we red, amber, green? You know, some very simple red, amber, green, you know, that's going to be your, your KPI on whether or not your metrics perform at all is if you can get that great alignment between your commercial plan, your buyer, your media plan. And those processes can be measured in terms of, you know, how many roadblocks do we hit? Are we red, amber, green in that? And that, that KPI is actually far more corollary to uh, what kind of outcomes do we get? One other thing, too, you know, that I saw when I was leading uh, shopper marketing at J&J is your audience innovation. So you could have um, I have this one favorite slide that I put together and it's literally showing the merchandising was aligned to the media and it was the same thing year on year. But there was massive audience innovation and it was a 25 point gain. And so that's something if you look at a PowerPoint deck and you see the activation plan it looks identical, but the data science underneath that. So that's where I do think this measurement and having this sophistication and understanding which audiences you tried to reach. There's a lot that goes into that, especially with the promise of retail media and that rich data that allows some of that audience creation. Yeah. And I think that that's, and that, and that I think starts to get us into that question around, um, you know, cause Heather, I think you've opened like a whole, a whole piece here around, um, around audience effectiveness, right? And you just don't, you just don't hear people, and I was talking to, um, talking to my friend Brian Owens yesterday, who's uh, working, a, doing a lot of work at the MLY and our commerce on inclusivity in commerce. And it's like, why aren't people leaning into retail media audiences to reach a vastly more diverse audience than they could probably reach through some of their conventional audience networks, right? I mean, if, and, um, you know, I was watching a presentation yesterday with uh, a key and Pepsi, and they were talking about the work that they're doing um, to reach the Latino consumer in the U.S., right? 20% of the United States population is a pretty big audience, right? But the, one, of the key, one of the key audiences used to do that is Walmart, right? Walmart's got such deep reach into that network and so effective at getting that, getting that shopper into a conversion mindset and buying. It just seems that there's so many more opportunities beyond the simple tactical roas stuff that's going on today to be able to really build and develop something. So... And Jeffrey, I'm going to throw ROAS back to you for a minute, just as a, because uh, you, uh, you've already come back with Roar, um, so uh, the Katy Perry song, or Return on Relationship, as our, as our, uh, our, our, key, our key measure here. But um, I assume that, I assume everybody's still addicted to ROAS, right? Like, even though there's reasons they probably shouldn't be. Yeah, and I mean, you know, ROAS is, you know, ROAS is an important metric to a certain degree. I would say that to I would say to the mid-level media person that's trying to understand how their media is running, um, and what we're trying to do with measurement standards is that we're not really trying we're trying to uh, standardize non-derived metrics, and then create methodology best practices on derived metrics. So you know, probably every single person on this call probably looks at ROAS differently and we probably, you know, you might have human capital in it, you might have media, you might have agency costs, it'd just be impossible for any of us to agree what ROAS should be. So what we're, we're essentially saying is that um, we're, we're bringing the issue of viewability and outcomes. And the MRC last year published uh, standards around this where um, they said that, and we're kind of continuing that, that 
any outcome needs to be based on a viewable impression. Um, and as a retailer, if your you know main value proposition is closed loop measurement, uh, then you need to any outcome that you are attributing to an ad needs to be based on a viewable ad, which which sounds really simple, but you know I, I'm wearing Air Jordans right now. And let's say after this call, Andy go buy buy some Air Jordans, and you know Brian, I'm like, hey Brian, you know, you have to pay me a certain amount of things. I want to claim credit for Andy's Air Jordans, and you'd be like, that's insane. No one saw the Air Jordans, and that's what we're seeing uh, with that. You know, we need to make sure that you know, and then what that allows you to do is that you can compare for the performance. I think just knowing you wear Air Jordans should be enough for all of us, right? <laughs> I, think I think your I think your fashion brand is strong enough that that would uh, that would work. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, so we're just trying to ensure that, you know, there is that transparency uh, across those definitions of especially non-derived metrics so that, you know, when brands or retailers want to have those derived metrics, they're all using the same, uh, I would say, the same basic definitions. And if you do not follow any of the definitions we outlined, that's also fine. We are also just saying that you need to be transparent. So an example of this is that we've, we're, we're looking to you know, for example, we say that when you talk about share of, it needs to be based on impressions. You can talk about share of spend and share of sales and share of anything else. You just need to say share of spend. So if you were to say share of voice or category share without any other, you know, additive to that, then you, it's based on impressions. And if it's not, you just need to be transparent. So that's all we're really trying to say, you know, Brian, if you're wearing a blue shirt and, you know, you can't claim you're wearing a red shirt even though we can all see you're wearing a blue shirt. And that's kind of what we're trying to get with these measurement standards is just knowing what a blue and a red shirt is uh, so that as a buyer, I know what I'm getting and then I know what I, I can compare it against. So your focus is really more on the raw materials of the, of the measurement standards rather than the standards themselves. And which I think is actually a really, I think is a really interesting way to get after that. Right. So, so how do we, how do we make sure that the, if the building blocks are consistent, it's, you don't, that just, That'll for, allow us to ask fewer questions about where where the uh, where the analytics that are built on them are are consistent. Uh, yeah, I mean the rate of innovation we're seeing on retail media is just insane. Um, so we want to make sure that we create enough leeway so that innovation can continue to happen with the building blocks that we have in place. And maybe in a year or two we'll kind of come back in and we might have more stringent standards. But I think right now that's important just to have basic building blocks to allow innovation to continue to grow. Yeah, and you talk about the difference between raw materials and then strategic use of KPIs. I mean, a lot of focus, of course, of trying to get to that holy grail incrementality, incremental ROAS, uh, which is which a lot of brands want. But um, I've talked to a few CPGs like, you know what, I'm fine with ROAS in certain cases where I'm defending brand share. I'm not, it's not about incremental, you know, I'm under attack. It, it's usually through a commercial lens. You know, people looking at these metrics through a commercial lens and say, you know, I've got a, I'm a, I've got the leader in the category. I'm defending share for this one promotion period. I know they're going to go hard. I may not get incrementality, but I may get, you know, defend the, the share I have. And so uh, I, I did, I've not heard a universal I ROAS is the only thing that matters now. Um, ROAS can still play a role on your objectives. I don't know if Heather, if you found that to be true with your work. 
I feel like it can. And then I just, I think it really depends on your objective, because if you are going after bringing people into your brand, um, you have a lot more convincing to do and you might have to do a lot more ad spend. So your spend might not look great. But then if you look at lifetime value, which is longer, uh, which not a lot of people are interested in longer term metrics right now. um, But I think that's important. So you got to look at your category churn. And, you know, even from that brand lens, are you trying to attract people? Are you trying to loyalize them? You know, getting people to buy a little bit more is a lot less expensive. Um, but if you're only focusing on those people, um, you know, your fate is determined by them over time. If you're not bringing new people in, um, which is typically not cheap. Uh, so that's where, as I look at ROAS, I'm like, if you're, you know, if you're trying to get people to buy more, that's a great metric. If you're trying to convince people to come, then maybe it's not. So I think it's important to have, you know, set the right expectation because um, you're who you're qualifying through a retail media network and their behavioral background um, could be an incredibly good spend, but your cost per impression might be really expensive, but it could get the job done. Well, and I think too, you've got, you got a couple of, one, because what's happened with incrementality is, is that unless, you know, you're Claire Wyatt at Albertsons who's actually really thought through the problem and come up with like a really intelligent way to try and measure it, most people are just trying to switch that conversation to new to brand shoppers, right? And it, which is awesome if you're selling a mattress or something. But I mean, but in the CPG world, I mean, I don't know what, let's take Coca-Cola, for instance, is making up a company, right? How much money does Coca-Cola make from people who have never had a Coca-Cola before, right? Like none. I mean, that's, it's such a small percentage of their business. That whole, that whole notion of new to brand needs to get so nuanced and defined and assumed away that it's almost not that helpful, really, when you're trying to think about, think about it within the consumer packaged goods industry as a, as a platform for incrementality. I think the other big piece is that, you know, you were talking about the, you know, the need for the, the commercial outcome, right? That sometimes I just, sometimes I just need volume, right? You know, sometimes I need that volume because I'm defending share. And I think this is a a whole different podcast about what the role, how you manage share in an omni-channel world versus a brick and mortar world, because you have to spend more to keep share in the digital world than you do in the brick and mortar world. Different topic, different day. But so much of what gets spent on trade, you know, in the analog world is just to anniversary a plan, right? Like, you know, we ran we ran a BOGO at Publix last year. We got to run one this year because if we don't, we don't make our number. Um, so what's the strategic rationale for it? There isn't one. Um, but that's how it gets baked in. And, you know, that's not the greatest spend in the world, but no one really cares what the outcome of that is, provided you you accomplish the volume objective that was set out for you in order to to get back to the return on relationship, Jeffrey. Like if I can't, if I can't hit my plan with a retailer, the relationship goes south. So in essence, the the return you're looking on that from that spend is also return on relationship as well. It's just a different way of getting to the relationship, I suppose. So. And as we think about um, that digital spend that you were talking about too, you know, if you don't have strong performance digitally, you're going to start getting kicked out of stores as that physical real estate is going to be reliant because the stores are DCs. So, um, so you know, the whole uh, anniversary, you know, that is a very limited shelf life at this time because those worlds are merging very quickly. And so, people that didn't care before will have to start caring because. Uh, you know, it's going to impact their store. Well, yeah, one of my contentions is I think there's a three-letter acronym called RGM or Revenue Growth Management, which Heather, you know very well, and Andy, you do as well. But the Revenue Growth Management function within a brand were the ones that are basically responsible for 
calculating, deploying, and assessing the the strategic and economic value of the analog merchandising money that gets spent, that function and the retail media function are going to need to have to start to talk to each other in a much more profound way than they have in the past. And those are two people that don't understand each other at all. So, uh, so trying to bridge that gap is going to be, uh, is going to be super. And that's, you're hundred percent right. And that's tricky because with the growth of account teams and having dedicated customer teams and Robinson Patman and the privacy there, uh, here's a lot of headwind to do that. But I, I've been seeing the same thing, Brian, is that, you know, revenue growth management strategically, how do I want my portfolio, to, my catalog, my product catalog across the different retailers to keep them cannibalizing myself? You know, those functions um, are going to get much more important. And and it's going to be a tension with the individual customer teams about how this data and information is shared. Shameless plug time, both for myself and for uh, MPG here, but uh, Larissa Dannenberg from MPG is going to be part of an event that I'm running as part of Retail Cities, the retail network that I run on September 14th in Chicago. Uh, we're running an event called Double Jointed Planning, which is basically, if you look at the two joint business plans today that fuel a, relation, a brand's relationship with a retailer, which are the commercial plan and the media plan, <laughs> those two people just don't know how to speak to one another. And uh, I know that MPG has been doing a lot of work with some key clients around trying to bring that business planning process together. Heather, do you want to spend a little bit of time talking about that? And then I'm going to kind of kick it to everybody for just like a sort of a closing thought here as we, uh, as we move, as we move on. So. Yeah. And I, and I think the RGM point that you brought up very well, because media looks at it from that national level, the customer teams look at it from their point of view, and then you've got RGM looking at it national level and creating some principles, which may not be applicable to that particular retailer. So I do think the customer requirements need to have a much larger voice in RGM planning and media. Um, and I think I think it's a whole new way. It's not just media planning, not just RGM, and not just customer planning. Um, to your point, you've got to triangulate those things. Um, and it's going to be all new processes, uh, which, you know, Andy made that point at the beginning. Those processes are going to be very important. And it's not just doing what we've been doing uh, for the last several decades. I will echo what, what, what Heather said. And, you know, in terms of objectives, if you don't know what your objective is, you can have all the data in the world and it doesn't matter because you don't know what you're measuring. And it could be incrementality, it could be purchase frequency, it could be due to brand. You know, measurement standards, and we're going to try to create specific definitions. But at the end of the day, if you as a company don't know what your objectives are and how are you going to get to those objectives, none of the data matters. So, yeah. Just be provocative and call it the big O. It's the it's the new big O. The objective. Yeah, well, that yeah, RU or return on objective is my favorite little three letter acronym. So, like you know, so your returns are sort of contextually dependent on the uh, on the objective that you've got. And um, so, so as a wrap up, so Jeffrey, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with one sort of weird question for you, which is like, if you do another retail media buyer's guide next year or 18 months from now or whenever whenever it is. What do you think the big topics are going to be that we're talking about then? Like, what do you, do you th still think we're going to be talking about wall gardens and measurement standards and click standards and all that stuff? Or do you think, can you see this conversation? I hope the answer is yes. Evolving beyond that to like a, like a more substantive conversation about what the role is of the, the retail media network within the marketing portfolio? Or where, where do you see this conversation going from your point of view? So I think with retail media, both the biggest value of retail media, it's the ability to have that customization and personalization because of the first party data. But I also think that's the biggest thing hindering them long-term growth. Um, and what we're trying to, what I'm really trying to do is how can we bring in the smaller long tail brands that are in store into retail media? How can we automate in retail media? 
decrease that human capital cost because running retail media as an agency or a brand, it's, it's very expensive compared to other types of media. Um, so that, you know, you can really automate that. If you look at all the big digital players in the ecosystem, most of their revenue is made by those smaller players. And, you know, obviously we're not talking, to, talking about the junkification of these retailers. It's, you know, brands that you have in store that want to play into retail media. They don't have millions of dollars in budgets, but they would still be valuable. And, you know, how can you create a streamlined experience where me as a brand, I can buy across multiple retailers in a standardized audience taxonomy with a standardized creative ad specification and just really make it a programmatic solution. And that's kind of one of the things we're really going to be diving into next year. Like, how do we bring more automation into retail media for that scale? Right. Yeah, that, that, I look forward to that conversation next year because I think there's a, I think there's an interesting I think automation is good. I'm not exactly sure where programmatic fits in, in terms of this, but that's a that's a whole different can of worms for uh, for next time we talk. So, uh, um, Heather, any closing thoughts from you as we uh, as we look at this world? So, no, I think this is like a, a great beginning, and I think you know as as you talked about, we've we've uncovered lots of different directions uh, this can go, and um, I think it's been I've learned a ton uh, even from just listening to this podcast. So really happy to have uh, been a part of it with you, Brian, Andy, and Jeff. Appreciate it. Well, and we've learned a ton from you. I, I like that three. I like that three-way triangulation between the the national media team, the national sort of RGM thing, and then the individual customer team as sort of a really interesting triangulation way to solve the problem. I thought that was really powerful, and uh, I haven't heard people talk about it that way before. So I think that's actually a really helpful frame for a way to look at that. Andy, what, what are your what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think uh, can't underestimate the role the CPG leaders uh, in this space can play in driving the whole uh, future of this space. And I think, you know, we started with the retailers more in the power seat with a, a taxation approach in, in most cases to get investment. And they've driven the investment, uh, which was needed. Get that. But I think to get performance, we're going to we're going to see that leadership come from CPGs. And what I've seen happen, many retailers have really upskilled their retail media network teams. And those skills are way more than better and sophisticated and understanding than they were a year and a half ago. And now what I'm seeing is the CPG with their retail media network partner can can help teach the merchant because the merchants are the are the last to the table with any real depth of understanding. And I think for this to really be a commercial joined up plan, you've got to bring those merchants along. And sometimes the CPG is the best leader with their retail media department to educate the merchant on how this can really work. And so I, I think 2024 is going to be the year of performance. I thought it'd be a bit more this year, but with the measurement work that Jeffrey's you know putting out there, we get those standards. You know, we could still get more performance without the standards by, and it'll take a while for them to be adopted, right? So in the meantime, I still think it takes the, the upskilling and leadership to get to better performance. And I think the industry is going to look for that performance to continue to improve. Yeah, well, and I think that, that that idea around bridging the gap to the merchants more consistently with the retail media networks, especially the big ones that have set it up almost so that it's almost purposely harder to do that because they're trying to access different budgets. But, you know, to quote my, uh, my dear friend Spencer Barrett, who's the CEO of uh, Inmar, Spencer always say, look, you know, 42% of all the trade spend in the country is spent completely inefficiently. That 42% of trade is larger than the entire advertising budget for the entire consumer packaged goods industry. 
So there's a massive opportunity here to take some of the principles and concepts of retail media, reapply money that's being poorly spent and spend that in a much more powerful way. So, and hopefully that as we continue to bridge the gap between the commercial teams, the work the commercial teams are already doing uh, and the media networks uh, that uh, that continues to happen. Well, Jeffrey, Heather and Andy, I just wanna thank you all very much for your, uh, your participation and engagement in today's conversation. Um, that was uh, that was uh, that was fantastic. So uh, so really really uh, um, looking forward to the the next conversation we all have, and uh, I'm sure I will see all of you over some rubber chicken lunch at some industry event at some point in the near future. So uh, <laughs> so uh, and congratulations, Jeffrey, on an excellent report. Uh, you and the team did a fantastic job. So thank you, thank you. Yeah, a great service to the industry. So yep, uh, got it on to my team yesterday. Thank you. Terrific. All right. So, so for our group, uh, this is Brian Gilderberg signing off for the MPG Path, Path Forward. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.